It's almost funny to me. So here we are, season three. Um, in most standard polls, you know, season three is the best of TNG. I'm not 100% sure I agree with that. We'll see what I think going back through it. Lord knows that Voyager surprised me on that with season five being just knocking it out of the park. So, I don't know. But I do remember liking the season overall. In fact, I'm glancing at a list of episodes over here on the left, and I see several episodes that I like to rewatch regularly, including The Survivors, Booby Trap, The Price, for reasons we'll get to, um, The High Ground, good one, Matter of Perspective, Yesterday's Enterprise. Uh, I, there are quite a few here. I'm not going to keep going. There's quite a few. Oh, Sarek. Love Sarek. It's funny to me, because... It makes relatively no sense. I have a terminology that one of these days I'll come up with a proper lorium for, but for the moment I call it the Star Wars effect. It's when something really shouldn't have succeeded, but somehow does. Against all odds, against all entireties, something in fictional works and fictional creation is just really awesome. And if you go and analyze how you know the making of and creation, you say, how the hell did that happen? Right? Season 3 was a mess from a production standpoint. Uh, I have here a, a small list of people who joined and the, or who either left or joined and then left during Season 3. These include Melissa Snodgrass, who I've praised many times, uh, Beamler, Manning, Richard Dennis, I don't, I'm not super familiar with, Patrick Stewart was wanting to leave, Ira Stephen Bear came and left, this is when he came, came into Star Trek, uh, Wagner, who was brought in to be the mainliner for the show, and left after a scant three weeks and four episodes. Season 3 saw people just revolving dooring all over the place. Season 3 also saw two people who were not familiar with running Star Trek basically taking the reins. Michael Piller, who took over after Wagner, and Rick Berman. Now, I have plenty of hatred to fling at Rick Berman. And indeed, I have even more new stuff to hate at him for TNG stuff that we'll get to later on, and DS9 stuff. But I always like to give credit where credit is due. And one thing I'll give Berman is, after Maurice Hurley was finally shoved out of the show, and Berman functionally took over as the guy running things politically and as an executive, even though it was Pillar's show at this point, Berman was the one who was handling the network side of things. Berman mostly took a hands-off approach to things and mostly just tried to make sure that people had what they needed to do their job and tried to polish up the show a little bit. And if I could be so blunt, it shows. Even just going straight from the last episode into this episode, or actually more accurately, the last episode into Ensigns of Command, but whatever, the visual difference is stark. The new uniforms, some of the new touch-ups with the props, the completely different lighting design, new approaches to editing, and a stronger emphasis on Ron Jones, which I know sounds like a weird thing to point out, but season three is basically Ron Jones' season. While he has done quite a bit of music uh, up until now, the majority of episodes in Season 3. I shouldn't say that. I haven't actually counted. But I believe the majority of episodes in Season 3, I'll count at some point uh, to verify that statement, were done by Ron Jones. This overall left, even as a kid, but especially nowadays, it leaves me this feeling of greater polish. Like they're trying more. They're trying to present themselves better. And that's important because this episode is actually kind of lackluster. <laughs> I mean, it's not bad, but I don't have much to say about it as far as its quality. It's just kind of there. 
I also want to comment on a few other little things here, though. So I mentioned a lot of people cycled out. Um, they changed the uniforms. They did a new intro and a slightly varied version of the intro's theme, which basically became the TNG theme from Season 3 onwards. Um, also, of course, Diana Moldar was finally kicked off the show. There's no denying the fact that amongst general Trek fandom, most people don't like Pulaski. As I think I've made clear doing these ruminations, I actually found myself rather liking her quite a bit. She had an absolutely terrible introduction in The Child, and then a couple of stumbles after that, but for the most part, I thought she was actually quite good. So it's a bit of a shame that they basically kicked her off the show, um, and that is what happened by all accounts, although as ever, who knows the specifics since Hollywood. And uh, Rick Berman was personally involved in trying to get the ever-lovely Gates McFadden back. Now, I do like Gates McFadden, and not just for the crush reasons. She's a good theatrical actress. I just kind of wish they had done more with her. By memory, I don't remember her being particularly memorable, except for eh, three or so episodes from this point onward. I hope I'm proven wrong as we go through these with analysis mode on. Even in this episode, she serves as a acceptable, but otherwise... Not particularly well done. That's the wrong way to put that. She serves as an acceptable but otherwise unremarkable subset to the A-plot of the episode. Um, I mentioned Patrick Stewart was thinking about leaving. Stewart had this feeling that the episodes focused too much on other characters. I'm completely with him on that, if I can be so bold. Now, the specifics of this have been debated for several several years at this point. Some people insist that Patrick Stewart wanted more girls in action. Some people insisted Stewart just wanted more stuff to do as an actor. Which of these is true, I'll leave that up to you, and I don't actually care all that much, to be honest with you, because we don't know. But the resultant was that Stewart was feeling generally unsatisfied with his role on the show, and frankly, I don't blame him on that. While Stewart is an excellent actor and has done great things with his role, his role has actually really been pretty small in season one and two. Most of the, the heavy lifting has been done by other characters. There have been Picard episodes. Measure of a Man was basically a Picard episode, for example. Um, but for the most part, he hasn't really had that much presence. We will start to see this shifting away, and most of what most people consider to be the best Picard episodes are from this point onwards as a consequence, most likely, of trying to adapt to that. We've got Inner Light. Um, we've got the other episode I can never think of the name of, <laughs> the Q one. And then we've got, uh, you know, Best of Both Worlds, although that's debatable. We also have all of the stuff that's going to go on with the Klingons later on, and the Romulans, and we have, uh, you know, All Good Things, which is the Picard episode, functionally. So you can kind of see how that shift did take place over time. The other thing I wanted to comment on, really briefly, Maurice Hurley was fired. Uh, he had lost, well, rewind. It is my belief, based on information, that Maurice Hurley lost the political game that he was playing and that he got kicked the hell out. He states that he left and he was just tired of the infighting in the writer's room. I'm not sure what to make of that. I, I, as ever, it's hard to judge the specific veracity of a lot of these statements. So make of that what you will. 
But Hurley's gone. Ronberry is effectively no longer an entity as far as the creation of the show. Berman and Pillar are the ones actually making things from this point on. Oh, there's another name I want to mention. Marvin Rush, which I'll talk about in a second. I bring all of this up because I find myself wondering how lucky we really were that Season 3, at the very least, nailed the ratings as well as it did. Whether you agree that Season 3 is the quality that, that it tends to have the popular opinion of or not, Season 3 absolutely smashed the ratings out of the park. In fact, I actually have those ratings right in front of me here. Um, it's taking a moment to load. Here we go. So, Season 2 had roughly a 9.77 million uh, Nielsen system, okay? A Nielsen rating, I should say. As to after Season 3, that would go up to 10.58 million which is a pretty big jump up, especially given the slot it contained. That Then syndication started happening, and it would skyrocket even further up to 11.5 million for Season 4. Now, that's actually the, key, the, the peak right there. Star Trek basically peaked uh, right there in, in the fall of 1991. I guess that would actually have been Season 3. Hang on. Let me look something up really quick. I'm sorry. Dates. So many different dates. Uh, I try to keep all this clear. But I don't always succeed. Here we go. So this would have been June. So. Okay, no, I am right. I'm right. I was saying it correctly. Sorry. I was misreading things. Okay, so point being, season four pet peaked as far as the Nielsen ratings. Now, I myself don't take a lot of measure in the accuracy of Nielsen ratings because... I know how that whole system works, and it's kind of crap, but it was basically all they had. Nowadays, you know, with digital distribution, with things like uh, Amazon television or Netflix television, we can have far more accurate figures, not only of, of viewing, you know, clicks, but of how many minutes of any given show that are watched aggregate across the thing, you know. How many people watch five minutes of a show and move on, versus how many people watch the whole thing. It's kind of the same thing we get on YouTube, actually. But back in the day, all they had was Nielsen ratings. And because those ratings went up, and because the show gained a tremendous amount of popular support, regardless just from regular Star Trek support, you know, Trek fans in other words, I think that's pretty much the reason why Star Trek managed to do as well as it did for as long as it did. Trek was its own quiet little phenomenon, but after season 3 and 4 of TNG, Trek became a popular phenomenon. And that's why we get things like DS9, which is awesome, Voyager, which is enjoyable, and Enterprise, which there are things in Enterprise that I'm very grateful we got. I wish it had kept going, but, you know, what can you do? And I think that's kind of awesome that we got all of this for, from this incredibly tumultuous, violent period in Star Trek history when everyone hated everyone else and nobody could figure out how to get things working. I do want to mention one other thing really quick. So Michael Piller started working as a writer. In fact, the script that got him pulled on board into the writing room and then eventually into the mainliner slot was the script for this episode, even though they actually worked on the Instance of Command first. I mention that because in this episode, the sci-fi elements are there. I know Wagner worked on this as well, but my reason for bringing this up is the sci-fi elements exist and aren't super interesting. It feels like they, they're like, here's a concept. By their own admission, they had no idea how to end this episode. They didn't have a deliberate ending in mind, so that's why things just kind of stop after a certain point. But the what I call the A-plot, which is the plot about Wesley and Stubbs and arguably Beverly, that is a far more interesting plot, and that makes sense. 
Pillar himself was coming from non-sci-fi. Oh, hang on, I don't remember the name of the show. I was just reading this. It was a completely different uh, environment that he was used to working in than this one. Uh, here we go. He had been working on Miami Vice. Oh, no, wait, that's, that's Wagner. Oh, no, this is, this is Pillar. This is Pillar. Uh, he had been working on Miami Vice, Probe, Simon and Simon. You know, more regular television, for lack of a better way to put that, than something that at the time was considered rather out there, Star Trek. So you can kind of see that feel when the, the stronger elements of the show are the ones that focus on the people rather than the tech. But I'm done talking about season three. I wanted to just kind of talk about that. I do have one last thing to say about season three and onwards. The gentleman I mentioned earlier, Marvin Rush, he basically became the lighting lead, the guy who set up lighting design and presentation and just was the, the guy who was in charge of that for 16 years from this point on in Star Trek. So if you've seen Star Trek, there's an extremely high chance you've seen his work. Now I point that out because good lighting design is actually a very difficult thing to pull off in general, but especially when you have a physical live set. And while the lighting isn't exactly bad in season one and season two, as I've pointed out before, it's noticeably different from season three and onwards. Nowhere is this more apparent in this episode at the 33-minute mark, which is why I bring this up specifically. Even just looking at it normally, you can tell the difference. Like going straight from a previous episode to the next episode, the lighting difference is just astonishing. But in the 33-minute mark, there's a scene where Troy is talking to Stubbs, and they're basically in the dark. And yet the scene actually feels brighter lit than previous scenes on, like, the bridge seemed. It's because of the way he uses specific lighting and the contrast in that to highlight certain parts and to bring out the color in people or their costumes or the set rather than just having the lights on at a certain level. It's excellent design, in my, my blunt opinion, and I know that's a weird thing to comment on, but believe it or not, I've actually worked as a lighting designer before for theater plays back when I was in, uh, this had been late high school, early college years, and it's a lot of work to try and set this stuff up, so I always appreciate when someone does a lot better job than I did. <clears throat> so, Ron Jones is awesome. Um, there's Stellar Matter, because the Naked Now, we need to do that better. And Ken Jenkins plays uh, Professor Stubbs. Now, can I just say... Ken Jenkins actually nails the role pretty damned well. He comes across as the perfect... Like, I, I don't know how else to phrase this. He plays the role perfectly. He is obsessive. He is fixated on his desire, his need to have something that, that is what, it, what he is. And he's very antisocial. But he also has this facade he's carefully built up over, no doubt, years and years of practice of just kind of being slightly aloof and irreverent. And he portrays that wonderfully. So, as usual, definite praise where it is needed for the guest stars on this show. So let's talk about the B-plot first. First of all, I'm reminded of another previous episode, Contagion, where the Iconian virus was involved. This one's a lot more difficult to deal with than that because that was pure software. You can't reboot all the nanites out of your system unless you get some, you know, get some air pressure. Just like... You know, maybe that can mark, but you can't just reboot the computer to get rid of all the nanites. Maybe I'm just a weirdo, but to me, the nanite threat is actually goddamn terrifying. They are chewing apart and interacting with systems in ways they're not supposed to be done with. It's not a matter of reprogramming the system, it's more a matter of deprogram pro deprogramming the system, or rather deprogramming the hardware, so that the software has no idea what to do anymore. 
we have an entire function of the ship being wrong. They're in a, a bubble of metal in space. I mean, do I need to make my point here? That's terrifying. And yet, for some reason, and I don't know why, they never treat this as a significant threat. Not really. No one dies. I mean, I'm against the red shirt dying policy as much as anybody, but nobody dies. There's no real threat to anyone. I mean, even in Contagion, there was that terrible lift ride, which, crazy though it was, was at least showcasing how the it was da- literally dangerous just to operate on the ship. And yet there's so many times in this episode where they're just casually like, eh, take him to his quarters, or let's go down here, or hey, let's go down here, I'm going to go into here, you know, as if everything should just be working normally, because it kind of is. I think that's probably the biggest reason why the threat of the week of the nanites just didn't sell it for me. There was nothing... It's an idea that should be terrifying. It's like, oh my god, the ship isn't working. And instead it was, eh, whatever, we'll figure it out. We can leave if we have to. It's not really a big deal. I mean, wouldn't you trust going to warp with a computer that isn't working properly? He said sardonically. So, I don't have actually much else to say about the B-plot. Um, it is a nice twist that instead of Wes saving the ship, uh, Wes destroyed the ship. That, that's good, you know, it's got to keep the balance going there between the two. Um, I do like the fact that he, when he sets out traps for these things, before he's willing to admit what he's done, he's like, okay, let me set a trap here, and then six feet later set a trap here, and he's in Ted Forward, of all places. I'm not sure what exactly Wes is thinking of that one. Maybe he really is setting, like, thousands of these things across the ship. I don't know. Um, But then they start talking about the thing. And it's like, so there are these nanites that consume and reproduce and evolve. And this is actually a decent uh, usage of the term evolution. Not completely accurate, but still fairly accurate. Better than the usual usage of the word, which should actually be mutation, but I'm getting off topic. So they evolve and they have this, and I quote, a new collective intelligence... I honestly wonder if anybody, when they were doing this, had any idea how much this sounded like the Borg. <laughs> Going back, it's like, oh my god, nanites that are spreading throughout the ship that have a collective intelligence. I, I mean, right? <laughs> I know it's not quite the same thing, but that was the first thing my lo- mind jumped to. Um, so then, Stubbs, who is awesome, you know, he's he attacks the thing, and they immediately prove him wrong, which I do find amusing. What I also find amusing, though, is Picard effectively does will agree to go ahead and kill them all. I mention that because he obviously doesn't want to. And credit to Patrick Stewart, his subdued tone and his body language clearly show this is something I do not want, but something I have chosen to accept. And I do kind of like that. It kind of brings everything back to where Picard usually is at his central core. He's the captain. His people are in danger. The end. Like, that's, that's the final line there. When it finally gets to the point where there's no other wor- way around it, there's nothing else he can do, he's tried every other avenue, fine, kill them all. And he doesn't want to. I do also like the fact that, uh, you know, Data manages to communicate with them. And then I hate the fact that everyone's totally cool, except for Worf. Worf is the only one who raises any objection of the fact that Data is willing to let himself effectively be possessed by this alien life form that they know almost nothing about, except that they're pretty sure it's intelligent. Huh? Even if it wasn't malevolent, even if it wasn't willing to to seek out justice or whatever, (laughs) there is so many ways that could go wrong. Remember, these nanites did all of this damage to the ship unknowingly. 
I sure hope they didn't do any damage to Data while they were in there. It is a nice scene. I will give them that. And I will give credit to Brent Spiner. He does a fairly good job of acting robotic rather than like an android. It's, it's a fairly significant change, and he handles it quite nicely. And then I also like Stubbs' apology. It's probably one of the better moments of the episode for Stubbs as a character, because you can tell on some level or another he understands that he has no life, that he has never had any life, and that as a consequence his defense me mechanism to that has been devoting himself to his work, that the only thing he has in his life is his job, his achievements, his accomplishments, the desire to reach out and try to achieve even if he fails, failure or success, he is the one who strived for that. That is what has been done to fill the void in his existence. What we see here is that to some extent or another, he acknowledges that. There's actually two scenes that emphasize that. One with Troy, which I'll talk about in a second, and this one right now. And after having done so, he, he apologizes legitimately and sincerely. And then he flat out says, I am at your mercy. And that takes some frickin' balls when people you have murdered are standing in front of you in a super powerful android that can kill you in probably less than a second. <sighs> Beverly and Picard talk about Wes in an earlier scene in this episode. It's a good scene. As ever, Patrick Stewart and Gates McFadden do have nice chemistry. And in this scene, although her hairstyle is really distracting for some reason, I don't know, it just looks really fake, like she just sprayed tons of hairspray on there or something. Anyways, I just keep thinking it's like concrete. But I like the scene because what I see in that scene is Beverly's desire to actually be a mother conflicting with her desire to not have to deal with being a mother. And, of course, Picard shows he understands both dynamics of Wesley as a person. That is to say, Wesley the Starfleet officer and Wesley the boy. And I like that. It's a nice scene. It's a very human scene. And the two bounce off each other very well. But I mention this because if it's not obvious, and this was done deliberately, Stubbs is Wesley 40 years down the road. And just about, I mean, they, they say that in-universe. Stubbs flat out says that to Wesley. And that is why I call this the A-plot, because that feels like the stronger emphasis and the stronger focus of the episode on Wesley and his development. He himself, at two points in this episode, expresses uh, discouragement and anger at the nature of the path his, his life is currently leading. There's this great bit where he's talking to Guinan. Guinan is awesome, as always. I'm sorry, I don't have much else to add. Guinan is awesome, as always. And he says, you know, she says, Hi, you think you're going to get a good grade on this? And Wes's response sullenly is, I always get A's. As if that's just expected, as if there's nothing that matters there. There's no relevance. And then, of course, the other bit is when he gets angry at his mother. You, you, you know, I've, I've, I've always done what everyone's asked of me, and you haven't even been here. And she, you could tell, and this is why I like Gates McFadden, she does a lot of facial acting in the next... There's several seconds where they just allow the camera to sit on her and allow her to act for a moment as she recovers from her son yelling at her and her own grief and guilt at having basically abandoned her child. And, she, and you could just tell she's struggling with, with how to react, you know, in, in anger or in hurt or in fear. But finally, she just swallows it all and just kind of says, I'm here now, like just so hesitantly. 
it's very human. Um, I'm here now. Let me help you. Let me, you know, let's try and figure out what's going on. And then, of course, it turns out that what Wesley is working on is a little bit more serious than she thought. But it's a nice segue between the A and the B plot, that little scene. Stubbs gives a line to Wesley early on the episode. Your greatest adversary is your own potential. I was trying to clarify the specific problems here, and I came up with three bullet points. Please feel free to add to these, because as ever, I love hearing your guys' thoughts on this. Antisocial, obsessive, and empty. Antisocial is obvious. Stubbs just has no idea how to deal with other people, and he showcases this constantly. The whole reason he maintains that facade is so that he doesn't have to, so that they see the mask and bounce off him, a fairly typical defense mechanism that Troy amusingly sees right through. Wesley kind of does the same thing. This is yet another reason why I kind of wish for my own particular headcanon all the way back in the Dauphin in Season 2. The idea of Wesley kind of moving out of this exact same rut that Stubbs has been in in his whole life. Because Wesley does the same thing. Remember, he doesn't have any friends. He doesn't really know how to interact with other people, except on a professional level. There was actually supposed to be additional footage on a subplot of Wesley finally getting a girlfriend and having, you know, having this other friend on the show. And it's in the deleted scenes and stuff like that, but that was left on the cutting room floor. Which, eh, fair enough. You have to have more room for the nanites, after all. This is a science fiction show. We, we can't have human development on a science fiction show, right? Right. In all seriousness, I do feel that those things were a little bit rushed. That kind of thing needs to be dragged out a little bit further. Unless you did the changes I said in the Dolphin, in which case this would be a nice next step, but I'm getting off topic. Also, they, do they have to end with Beverly being like, Tell me everything about this girl. I must protect my son. I mean, it was funny, but really. So, let's, so that's the antisocial. The obsessive is obvious. Both Stubbs and Wesley fixate on their work to the point of being unhealthy. To the, to the fact, point where they're doing all-nighters or working for years or months, depending on which person you're talking about, on a single project in order to, basically just because, because that's what they're working on, which brings me to point three, the empty. Stubbs all but admits that he is nothing without his work, that he has no core, if you will, that there is no true integral part of himself that he can identify as. He flat out says as much to Troy. And frankly, neither does Wesley. Wesley has no true identity of himself. His identity is forged on the work that he accomplishes. And the idea of trying to pull Wesley out of the pit that Stubbs has already fallen into, you can see why that's so uh, impacting throughout the course of the episode. So then there's the baseball allegory. I kind of already mentioned this, the need to achieve. Success or failure, just the need to try, the need to swing the bat. I'm actually not a huge fan of baseball. I prefer playing it um, back when I could, before the leg issue, uh, instead of watching it. But I kind of get the analogy there. And I have to admit, it's a really good speech that Stubbs gives. I'm not going to bore you with all of it, but, but I love his final closing bits of, you know, a new pioneering age in astrophysics postponed 111 years or whatever it is on account of rain. That line right there emphasizes everything about why Stubbs is just on the verge of insane throughout the course of this episode. Troy at one point says he, he is sincere that he would rather die than leave. It, it, it kind of showcases where his mentality is at. Because this is the worst possible thing that could happen to him. <laughs> An equipment malfunction preventing him from accomplishing his life's work. 
in such a way that he will never get another chance. Yeah. Um, uh, actually, I guess that's all I got, isn't it? You know, there's Wes's anger, which I already talked about. Um, there's the lighting at 33rd minute part mark, which I already talked about. There's the Borg. Resistance is futile. I guess that's all I got. It's kind of an unremarkable episode. Which is funny, considering, again, this kind of started off a new era of TNG and Star Trek in general. But we all know that that era really started in uh, Season 3, Episode 15, which we'll be getting to much later. For now, I hope you have enjoyed, and I'll see you guys next time.